One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about a guy who nearly killed an entire family. And I'll be talking about Johnson County's other serial killer. Who the hell is Johnson County's other serial killer? Oh, wouldn't you like to know? Listen and find out. <laughs> that was an excellent promo. We're getting so good at Did this. Did you know that there were there was another Johnson County serial killer? Um, no. Okay. Well, let me enlighten you. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know Casey Moe is representing. I mean, we've yeah. got... Um, you did the most famous Johnson County serial killer, mm-hmm. John Robinson. Boy, did I ever. <laughs> My nipples are still sore from that one. <laughs> um, but before I continue my Johnson County series, uh-huh. I have to do a quick correction. It's actually okay. two quick corrections. Did you make mistakes I on did. this podcast? I did. Okay, so they Get were out. both on... <laughs> I'm even an episode late on correcting these because these were both on the Cheaters episode. Mm, mm. Um, I called the episode of 48 Hours that I watched a knock at the door. It was actually called a knock on the door. And I believe that there's another episode called a knock at the door. (laughs) That's my bad. (laughs) How did you realize you'd made that mistake? Well, I I listened to that episode Uh and I was like, I was like, I don't think that's what that was called. And so then I went and looked it back up. I got to tell you, good for you. I would never catch anything like that. Um, and then the other one was that the Nazarene University in Olathe, I called it the Midwest Nazarene University. That's it's not at all what it's called. Yeah, it's Mid-America. Yeah, it's called Mid-America Nazarene. It was in my notes as Mid-America Nazarene. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. I didn't even catch the mistake. My dad did. Well, and... I didn't catch it. My dad didn't catch it. Yeah. We all know it's called Mid-American Nazareth. Yes. That's, well, we're all dumb. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my dad texts me and he's like, uh, it's called Mid-American Nazareth. And I was like, yeah, I know. Thank you. <laughs> he's like, we called it Midwest. Well, you didn't know when you recorded the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I promise I really do know what it's called. I don't know how I called it that on the okay. episode. I even went back and checked my notes and I have it written as mid-american nazarene so norman will dock your pay <laughs> by the way guys just so you know norman claims that he owns 50 percent of this podcast uh, yeah i don't know how he's claiming it's, any it's ownership weird. yeah but anyway huh when when all that we've done for him in his t-shirt sales <laughs> <laughs> you know kyla asked me the other day so how many people buy t-shirt sales because of you guys i was like uh, i think we've probably sold one t-shirt <laughs> If that, <laughs> and it was to me. <laughs> okay, you ready to talk about a serial killer? I'm so intrigued. Maybe I should say that again into the mic. No, no. Are you ready to talk about a serial killer? Boy, am I. <laughs> it's June 26th, 1989. Dave Roosh. Okay. It's spelled like Rush, but it's pronounced Roosh. And so if I call it Rush, please catch me so that I can correct myself. You know I will never catch that. (laughs) Um, Also, 
Majority of this information comes from an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. Ooh, yes. Okay. Okay. So Dave Roosh's Monday began like any other. He went to work at his optic lens shop in Kansas City, Missouri. And when he arrived at the shop, one of his employees told them that his 22-year-old daughter, Christine, who worked for him, had called in sick. She was having some kind of stomach issue, nothing serious, so Dave wasn't too worried. Mm Mm-hmm. As the day went on, Dave got a feeling that something wasn't quite right. Christine had promised her mother that she would come over that night and make them dinner. But it was nearly six o'clock and neither Dave nor his wife had heard anything from Christine, despite multiple attempts to get a hold of her throughout the day. So on his way home from work, Dave decided he would stop by his daughter's apartment and check on her. It was well after six when Dave pulled up to Christine's unit located in the Trafalgar Square apartment complex. These apartments are still around today, but they're now called the London House Apartments. If you search that, they will come up. But the address is 12901 Lord Nelson Drive. So these are right by Oak Park Mall. Okay. Um, they're kind of, okay, so you know like where if you go I-35, there's that frontage road past Quivira. Let me tell you something. You don't have to tell me a thing. I saw the outside of these and I know. You know exactly where they are. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So as we've mentioned before on this podcast, Lenexa is a suburb of Kansas City. It's located in, you guessed it, Johnson Johnson County. County. Lenexa's where we really grew up. It's where you lived. It's where one set of my parents lived. It's where we went to elementary school, middle school, where the mall we frequented every weekend was. It was very much our little corner of the world from ages like 10 to 18. Mm Mm-hmm. So Dave pulls up to this apartment and he immediately noticed that Christine's car wasn't in the parking lot. And he found that concerning. Then when he knocked on Christine's door, neither she nor her roommate, Teresa Brown, answered and his concern grew. Dave went home that night without making contact with Christine and he told his wife that he felt sure something was up. The Ruches spent a long, sleepless night continuing to try and get in contact with Christine, and after all attempts failed, Dave was back at Christine's door first thing the next morning. Again, there was no answer at the girl's apartment, but this time, instead of leaving, Dave used a credit card to slip the lock on the apartment door. Once inside, he called out Christine and Teresa's names as he walked through the apartment, but there was no answer and a sense of dread washed over him as he entered Christine's bathroom. Oh, no. There, on the counter, were both her eyeglasses and contacts. And Dave, working in the optical field, was very familiar with Christine's eyesight, and he knew that without those, she was nearly blind. There was no way she would willingly leave her apartment without wearing one or the other. And it would have been physically impossible for her to drive away without one or the other. She was nearly legally blind without them. To Dave, it was a clear sign that something was horribly wrong. Yeah. Dave left the apartment scared, confused, and convinced that he needed to get the police involved. When he called 911, though, he was surprised to learn that there was already a unit en route to the apartment. Because someone saw some guy breaking in? No, they had already received a call from Christine's roommate's family. Oh. 22-year-old Teresa Brown, saying that she had gone missing the day before under mysterious circumstances. 
The previous day, Teresa's brother Jim had received a call from the dental office where Teresa worked as a dental assistant. The office manager was like, hey, Jim, you know, something really odd happened today. Teresa's roommate called in sick for her. Have you heard from her? Mm. And Jim's like, what? No, I haven't. And that's super weird. Like, Teresa was very responsible. She was a super reliable employee. Um, If she were sick, she would for sure be the one to call in sick for herself. Her roommate never would have called in sick for her. And so, yeah, I mean, the only way you would do that is like if you really couldn't or talk. We're in the yeah, in the hospital or yeah. something. Yeah, I can't imagine a situation where your roommate would be calling in sick for you. Yeah. And so both the employer and her brother, Jim, were like, OK, this is super weird. So that Monday, the same day that Christine called in sick, Jim went to the girls apartment to check on them at some point during the day. And just as Dave had when he checked that evening, he got no answer. Over the next several hours, Jim left several messages on Christine and Teresa's answering machine. But when evening came and he hadn't heard back, Jim reached out to Teresa's boyfriend, Mike. Mike told Jim that he'd last seen Teresa early Monday morning. So she'd spent the night at his house on Sunday, um, but then she'd gotten up very, very early on Monday morning so she could drive home, get ready for work, and go into work. Mm -hmm. And that was the last he'd seen of her. In the time since then, he said he'd left like one or two messages on her answering machine, but that he hadn't really given it a second thought that she hadn't returned the call yet, that she'd just been busy probably. But when Mike learned that Teresa hadn't gone to work that day and that Christine had been the one to call in for her, he was very concerned. Something was definitely going on. He'd seen Teresa that morning. She'd been perfectly fine. Yeah. She wasn't sick. She wasn't bedridden. She'd gone home specifically to get ready for work. Something was not right. After talking to Mike, Teresa's brother Jim called police. In fact, he called police just minutes before Christine's dad, Dave, did. Wow. So Jim puts this all together, calls the police. At that same time, Dave is over at the apartment, breaking in, figuring out something's going on, and calling police. So yeah. like they're really put this thing together right at like the same moments. Both the Browns and the Rouches seem convinced that the girls were the victims of some kind of foul play. And it didn't take long for the police to come to that same conclusion. Though the apartment didn't show any obvious signs of struggle and there was no sign of forced entry, police believed that an unknown subject had entered the apartment while Christine was asleep and that Teresa had returned to the apartment after the attack had already begun. Detectives found Teresa's blow dryer and curling iron plugged in, ready for use in her bathroom. Mm -hmm. And they believed the unknown intruder had interrupted her while she was getting ready for work and likely at gunpoint had taken the girls from the apartment. It's so scary. It's so scary because, yeah... I'm I'm just picturing you have your blow dryer going. You can't hear a thing. No. That would be the perfect time for Absolutely. someone to break in. Absolutely. And scare the shit out of you. Absolutely. Police began their search for Christine and Teresa by canvassing the apartment complex. Surely with that many people around, someone would have seen something. But it led nowhere. None of the girls' neighbors had heard or seen anything that day. Ugh. Next, the police expanded their search outside of the apartment complex, and that's when they found Christine's car. 
It was located in the parking lot of a Motel 6 that is essentially right across the street from the apartment complex. So Mm -hmm. it's like apartment complex, empty field, street, Motel 6. Okay. Like from certain points in the apartment complex, you can actually see the Motel 6. Okay. So detectives believe that the only explanation for her car being found there was that someone had moved it there to conceal it. They were now more confident than ever that someone had abducted Christine and Teresa. A check of the women's bank accounts would only confirm that. They had been drained. Multiple withdrawals of the maximum allowed at several ATMs had been used to empty the accounts. Did they have videos at this time? So... Okay. Police are like it's it's still in the very early stages of right. like surveillance video and stuff like that. Okay. Um. So police get in contact with both of the girls' banks, and one ATM had surveillance video. Oh my god! And it wasn't even like video. It was like it took a picture every right. like four seconds or whatever. Well, it's 1989. Yeah. What can they do? Yeah. And so they get that footage and they're looking at it, and. The transaction captured was a withdrawal from Teresa's bank account. Okay. But the surveillance images showed that it was actually Christine who made the withdrawal. The images of her were disturbing. She had large sunglasses on to hide her face, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it, this transaction happened at 1030 at night. Oh, boy. And it was clear that she had been badly beaten. There were bruises all over her face and there was a large laceration across her forehead. They could see that in the Mm -hmm. grainy black and oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And they said just the look on her face, you could tell that she was um, under duress, like she was being forced. Nobody else was captured on (sighs) the video, though. With this new development, detectives decided it was finally time to let Christine and Teresa's families in on what was really going on. So only like a day has gone by at this point, Mm -hmm. but they hadn't told the families anything. They're like, we're working on it. We're following some leads. We don't know anything yet. At this point, they were like, we have to tell them. This looks really bad. This looks really bad. And detectives thought by this point that there was very little chance of them finding these women alive. Absolutely. Because... The accounts were emptied by now. Yeah. If the money was gone, what's the point of keeping the women alive? Yeah. Yeah. It was devastating news to the family and to the police, but they weren't going to give up. They expanded the search and began working with other police departments in the surrounding areas. And that's when they learned of another case that they felt sure was connected. Oh, shit. On June 19th, 1989, a week before Christine and Teresa went missing, 24-year-old Joan Butler had been reported missing. When Joan didn't come to work at the marketing company she worked for that Monday morning, her co-workers were concerned. Wasn't like her. So they called her father, and it turned out that he had already been concerned about her because the previous day was Father's Day, and she hadn't called him. Oh. He lived in Wichita. Uh He's like a television executive from Wichita. She had recently moved to the Kansas City area. She would graduated from KU and then taken this job with this marketing company in Kansas City. She was living in Overland Park. And so it was super out of the ordinary for her not to call her dad um, on Father's Day. And she had spoken to her mom the previous day, and she's like, you know, they had a nice conversation, and she's like, okay, I'll call back tomorrow, and I'll talk to Dad. Of course. Yeah. And then no call came. And they're like, 
That's weird. Super weird. Yep. So her father, Ralph, is like, something is up for sure. So before he calls police, he starts doing like a little investigation of his own uh, to find out, you know, what was going on. So he learned that she had been out on Saturday night at a club with friends. Joan had been the DD and she'd danced the night away, but she hadn't had anything to drink and she'd taken her friends home and then headed home to her own apartment in the Comanche Place apartment complex in Overland Park, Kansas. Again, these apartments are still around, okay, but they are now called the Aspen Lodge Apartments. They're at 8100 Perry Street in Overland Park. And I used to fucking live here. <gasps> In 1991. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, did you hear Peanut barked? Yeah. She was also she was surprised. Shocked. Wow. Yeah. Um, when you came across that, did you almost, like, poop your pants? I did. Yeah. I yeah. texted my mom. I was like, holy shit, is this where we lived? Because I was pretty sure. But yeah. I was Yeah. Yeah. You were 1991. Yeah. So, yeah. And she was like, yeah, why? And I told her. I was like, I guess they probably didn't put that on the flyer. That the woman was abducted from there. Well, no kidding. And that was recent when yes. you lived there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Joan was last seen about 4 a.m. on June 18th. And Joan had made it home to her apartment that night because the dress she had worn to the club was found hanging neatly on her closet door. So she had made it home. She'd taken her dress off. She was relaxed. Yes. And then uh, I also believe that when so Ralph calls the police, he's sure that something's going on. And they're like, sorry, she's a 24 year old woman. There's no sign of forced entry or any proof that any kind of crime occurred. It's not a missing person. Sounds like her crime was she didn't call you on Father's Day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So and so they, they're like, they're like, sorry, they're, we will not be looking into this. A 24-year-old woman is allowed to not call her dad. Yeah. And so he's like, no, no, no. That's not, that's not going to work for me. So he... Didn't have a key to her apartment, but like her neighbor did. Or actually, I think what happened initially was that a neighbor was able to climb in a window at the apartment and then unlock the door and let Uh them in. And so it was like a neighbor and then a her dad all went through the apartment. That's when they found the dress. Nothing was out of the ordinary, except there was a cigarette that she'd only smoked like half of that was sitting in the in in the ashtray like it burned itself out yeah and there was a half eaten piece of toast and so it was like setting right there with it like yeah. she stopped what she was doing very abruptly yeah and so the, let me tell you something i never stop my meals mid i never so, i always finish my cigarette 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. i don't smoke <laughs> So he's like, no, she's missing. This would be so frustrating. Oh, yeah. He's so frustrated. But as I mentioned, I think already, he's a TV executive Mm -hmm. in Wichita. Mm -hmm. So he uses that pull to get a story about Joan put on every news channel from Kansas City to Wichita. Yep. They're running the story from that day on, like for days, just running this story about how she's missing. And, but still, the police are not picking it up as an investigation. They're like, it's just a media story right now. We don't have any proof that she's actually missing. You know, the police might have been pissed. Oh, yeah. Honestly. I'm sure they yeah, were pissed. I, mm. And then, so Joan works at a marketing company. Uh-huh. 
all of her coworkers super concerned about their her. So they use their advertising expertise and they take out billboards all over the city with her face and her car on it. So she had been in a car accident like two or three days before she went missing. And so she was actually driving a rental car at the time. And so it had the rental car posted, had her picture posted and then like a number to call with tips. And so it's all over the city Uh and it paid off. Oh, my God. On Sunday, June 25th, the day before Christine and Teresa were reported missing, police in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about 30 miles west of Lenexa, received a call from a man at an apartment complex who said he had spotted the car that he recognized from the missing girl billboards he'd seen all over town. Yes. But remember, there's no no active investigation going on right now. And so the dispatcher's like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. You're kidding me. No. And so this guy who calls, he's like, no. He's like, this girl is missing. You've seen the billboards. You've seen the stuff on the news. Like, this girl is missing. I swear to you, it's this car. It's in the parking lot. You guys have to come check it out. Yeah. And, like, he had such, like, an impassioned plea that the dispatcher was like, all right, I'll send somebody out. Oh, my God. Yes. Let me convince you to do your job. Yes. Wow. And so they send out one officer. He comes to the apartment complex and he finds the car and he parks a little ways off and he just decides he's going to watch it. He's going to see if anybody comes to the car. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so he sits there and he waits and he waits and he waits. Mm -hmm. Almost two hours go by. I'd be so bad at that Oh, yeah, me too. (laughs) And then a man walks out to the car and opens the trunk. No. Yes. Yeah. So the officer gets out of his car and he walks up to the man and he's like, hey, um, this car has been reported missing. You know, can you give me some form of ID? You know, maybe it's just like a mix up or whatever. Uh And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. He's like, my ID is in my wallet. My wallet's just over in my apartment. No, don't let him go. I'll I'll grab it. And so the police officer's like, yeah, that's fine. So he walks with him to his apartment. Uh The guy walks in the apartment, slams the door in the police officer's face and immediately locks it. Oh, shit. And so the police officer's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Like, this is something for sure. Yeah. He kicks the door down. Oh, yes. Runs into the apartment just in time to see the guy diving out the back window of the apartment. Yeah. And he takes off on foot. Police officer tries to pursue him. The guy's too fast and he's got a head start. He loses him. Terrible. That sucks. It sucks. So he calls it into to dispatch and he's like, this guy just ran from me. There's definitely yeah. something going on. Police respond. It's Was a huge... the dispatcher like, I'm sorry, I can't find that file. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Huge police response comes. This officer who's waiting for kind of backup. He's already lost the guy. He decides he's going to go back to the car. Okay. He goes. He looks in the car. Inside is a wallet. And inside the wallet is an ID. For a man? Of the man oh. he just interacted with. Oh, my God. His name was Richard Grissom. When detectives ran his name, they learned that they were dealing with a career criminal. Mm. And a man who was something of a chameleon. Grissom was half African-American and half Korean. And in every picture they showed of him on this episode, he looks completely different. 
Wow. His hair, like the way he wore his hair would change his look completely. And he wore all kinds of different glasses. Uh He definitely was someone who could very easily disguise his appearance. And detectives said he had the ability to kind of pass as a handful of different races. So people would describe him differently every time they saw him. They're like, oh, yeah, he was a Hispanic man. Uh Oh, it was an African-American guy. Oh, no, for sure it was a Caucasian dude. Uh Like, he could pass. Oh, you can't catch that guy. No. And so they're like, holy shit, this guy is dangerous because he can hide in plain sight. Yeah. So they set up like the craziest manhunt in Lawrence to find him. So basically they say, we're looking for a man. We're looking for a man, (laughs) yes. They basically put the entire city on lockdown. Uh They set up roadblocks on every street that leads out of Lawrence. Whoa. They bring in canine units. They're looking for this guy everywhere. Meanwhile, they find out that not only does he have this crazy checkered criminal past, he's actually a convicted murderer. Oh, well, why is he out? So... He was convicted of murdering a Lansing, Kansas woman when he was just 16 years old. Because he was convicted as a juvenile, he only served three years before his release. Three years? Yes. I don't know. I don't know about that one either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, oh, God, this guy's even more dangerous than we originally thought. Jeez. So... They've got roadblocks set up. They're like, we've got to keep this guy in Lawrence. We cannot let him out of the town. But somehow, and we'll find out more on this later. (laughs) Don't pull a Kristen. (laughs) He beats the roadblocks. He gets out of Lawrence. Because the very next day, he abducts Christina Teresa in Lenexa, Kansas. Do you think it was that he was so fast that he got out of Lawrence before the roadblocks were up? Or do you think he just chameleoned his way out of it? He chameleoned his way out of it. I know exactly how he got out of it, and I'll tell you about that. Oh, my God! Okay. Okay. Yes. I mean, I can tell you about it now if you want. No, no, no. Okay. Leave some suspense. Yeah. (laughs) I'm on the edge of my seat. That's right. Keep me there. Okay. So now we're up to June 27th, 1989. Joan has been missing for more than a week. Christine and... Teresa have been missing a couple of days. A massive manhunt is underway for Richard Grissom. The entire Kansas City metro is on edge, gripped with fear. Investigators started looking for connections between the girls and Richard Grissom. And they found it. Really? Grissom worked at both apartment complexes. Oh. Grissom had a small painting company with a friend. And the company was contracted by both the Trafalgar Square apartment complex and the Comanche Place apartment complex. As a contractor there, Grissom had a master key to the apartments. What? Yes, so that he could go in and do maintenance during the day while people were gone. Oh. Yeah. And they don't do a background check on someone who has a master key? but... But I'm guessing that the juvenile record would be sealed, so you wouldn't see the murder charge. But I think he had other criminal charges. I was going to say, charges. career criminal yeah. to me. How, yes. old, how old was he? He was 28 when this happened. Okay, so he had to have done... Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder, yeah, if you... Maybe they didn't do background checks. Maybe they're like, oh, this guy's super nice. He was very handsome. 
Uh-huh. He had a very like genuine, warm looking smile. He's a great smile. Uh-huh. And like everybody who like knew him as a contractor at these uh-huh. apartment complexes said he was the nicest guy, was always friendly. Like see that scares the shit out oh, of me. Oh, it's super fucking scary. It's terrifying. We always trust the hotties. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I can't. He didn't have great hair. His hair was a problem most of the time. Very chiseled jaw. Great smile. Can I Google him? Or yeah. It, okay, okay. Richard yeah. Grissom? Yeah. I'm not going to ruin anything, am I? No. Oh. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at very recent pictures, and he's still... A yeah, good try looking to find guy. Like some younger pictures of him because well, boy, he has had some misses with the hairdos, hasn't he? Yes. Okay, now I'm fi- somehow I'm running into pictures of old white guys. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, he's handsome. He's very handsome. Are you done staring at him? No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> they ha- in this episode of On the Case of Paul's on, they had, you know, usually they have like four pictures that they just like zoom in and yeah, zoom out I of hate over that. And yeah. They had a shit ton of pictures of him and he always has this great big smile. Uh-huh. His hair is different in every single picture and he like not a single picture of him except for his mouth looks the same. It's so scary. Ooh. Okay, so they decide they find out that he's this contractor who's been working at both apartment complexes. He's got a master key, which explains why there was no forced entry. Mm-hmm. But those were not the only places he worked, which meant that he had more master oh, keys God. to more por- apartments all over the city. They had to find him, and they had to find him now. So that same night, the 27th of June... A maintenance worker at an apartment in Grandview, Missouri, approximately 20 miles southeast of Lenexa, was walking around the property and he saw a man kind of skulking in like an alleyway or a mm-hmm. breezeway between mm-hmm. apartment buildings. And the maintenance guy goes over and he like shines a flashlight on him and he confronts him and he recognizes him yeah. as Richard Grissom, the painter, yeah. who often does work there. And, the and he's like, hey, complex. what are you doing here? Yeah, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm looking for an apartment. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, dude. And he's like, he's like, I'm calling the police. No, 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 no. You don't say that to the murderer. So he goes to go call the police. He doesn't have a fucking cell phone. It's 1989. Yeah. Comes back. Of course, Richard Grissom's taken off on foot. Yeah. Police come. Grissom's long gone. But in his haste to run away, he made a big mistake. He left his fucking car behind. Really? Yes. He took off on foot and left his car. Did he feel like his car was so recognizable? I think maybe he thought he didn't have time to get in his car and Uh get away before that guy was going to be back. How fast did he think this guy was? I mean, it's a (laughs) car. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So detectives get a search warrant. Mm -hmm. Like, it takes a little time to get the search warrant. So they actually tow the car to police headquarters. And then once they get the search warrant, they open it up. And it's like they hit the fucking jackpot. Inside, they found numerous pieces of identification, including driver's licenses and credit cards belonging to Christine Roosh, Teresa Brown, Mm. and Joan Butler. Yeah. 
So they're like, okay, well, our suspicions are clearly true. Like, yeah. this is definitely our guy. But again, we have no idea where he is now. Yeah. So the search intensified. The Metro Squad was called in, which the Metro Squad is, um, for people outside of the Kansas City area, it's like this um, group of detectives that, like, assemble when you put your, you know, your rings <laughs> together. But it's like and the, they say, Earth, yeah, wind, <laughs> fire. <laughs> It's like um, it's like all of the most seasoned detectives from all of the little cities that make up the Kansas City Metro. They all come together. And Captain Planet says. <laughs> yes. And so they, the Metro squad's called in. They follow up on every single tip, every single lead that they had. And one tip paid off big. The Metro squad received a call from a woman in Chicago who had dated Grissom. Oh, she said that he had been calling her a bunch and that she was scared and wanted to help so that he would be captured. Uh-huh. So they tapped her phone and they waited for him to call again. And to their surprise, he did. He called. He said he was in Texas. He said he wanted her to come be with him. Mm-hmm. And she was like, because detectives were standing right there with her. She was like, of course, absolutely. I'll come down. Yeah, yeah. Tell me where, tell me when. I'll be there. Tell me your exact location. Yeah. And so she sets up a flight and he's supposed to come pick her up at the airport in Dallas. Did he get On suspicious? July 7th. Nope. He shows up to <gasps> pick her up and he's arrested. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what an idiot. Well, yeah, because I assume for all those other calls, she'd been like, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then all of a sudden she's like, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to come see you. I was just waiting for the invitation to get to Texas. Yeah. So he goes to the gate to pick her up and instead she's not there, but he is taken into custody. Oopsies. Yeah. So they immediately take him to an interrogation room that's right there at the airport. And they interrogate him for like seven hours. Mm -hmm. And he is like, nope. I don't know anything about any missing women. Oh, come on, dude. Yeah. In the meantime, they find the stolen car that he had been driving in the airport parking lot. Uh-huh. And they go and they open it up and they find thousands of dollars in cash and a kill kit <gasps> complete with a box knife, a hammer, a rope, gloves, and a pellet gun. So he was planning to kill this woman. Yeah, probably. Like almost immediately yeah. after he got her money. Yep. So, during the seven hours of interrogation, Grissom denies knowing anything Mm -hmm. about these missing girls. And he sticks to that story. He's like, nope, I don't know anything. Don't know anything. Nope. I don't know anything, but I'm guessing that uh, you guys will be able to dig up (gasps) that information. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah. Did he really say that? Yes. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes like a couple of other little like snide comments about how, well, he's like, I don't know about the girls. They're probably not even dead. Well, they're probably dead by now. Oh. Yeah. Terrible. And so like the detectives keep putting on the pressure. They're just like more and more pressure. And at one point it seemed like he was about to talk and he was like, you know, I could tell you everything you want to know. I could tell you exactly how everything went down. But What's in it for me? So he's like trying to work a deal. Uh-huh. And detectives were like, nope, 
No dice, buddy. We have got more than enough on you. You're not getting any deals. You are the Ted Bundy of Johnson County, and we will convict you. Uh huh. And so he doesn't say another word. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So they extradite him back to Johnson County. But because no bodies had been recovered, it wasn't until August 16th that a judge ruled there was probable cause that a crime had been committed and Richard Grissom was officially charged with first-degree murder of Joan Butler, Christine Roosh, and Teresa Brown. So they had him in custody that whole time, obviously. But they couldn't officially charge him with the murder until because there were no bodies. There's no bodies. There was no blood. There was no nothing. Yeah. So now the prosecutor's like, okay, we've got these connections. We've got all of this circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. We've got to be able to put this together in a way that a jury will see that without a doubt, first of all, these girls are dead. Yeah. And that he murdered them. Because all of they all they have is a circumstantial case. I'm kind of surprised they didn't make a deal with him. To get the bodies? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. Like, take death penalty off mm-hmm. the table and yeah. maybe you get some they answers. Didn't, they didn't seek the death penalty. I don't think the death penalty was active in Kansas oh, at this time. Oh, that's right. There was a time when yeah. you couldn't do it in Kansas. Yep. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. This death penalty was never mentioned in this, so. Oh. Well. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> So they kind of take their time putting together these pieces, and then a couple of things fall into place. So they talk to Marcellus Thibodeau, who went by the nickname Frenchie. Mm-hmm. So Frenchie Thibodeau was Grissom's business partner. They owned the painting company together. Okay. And Thibodeau is how Grissom beat the roadblocks. <gasps> So on no. the day, yes. So on the day that Lawrence was locked down, uh-huh. um, Richard Grissom called Thibodeau and he was like, "Hey, my car broke down. I need a ride back to Lenexa. I'm in Lawrence. Can you come get me?" Uh-huh. And he's like, "Yeah, dude, no problem." And so he comes and he picks him up from somewhere in Lawrence. Right. He gets in the car and he tells detectives that immediately um, something is off. Okay. With Richard and he's like, dude, what's up? And he's like, uh, I've been scamming this lady and I think that it's about to catch up with me and whatever. I think I just need to get out of town. And he's like, okay, all right. Mm-hmm. And so somehow they go through the roadblock, but like Richard Grissom has a hat on and he keeps it down. And like the, he, I don't know if they didn't ask for an ID or if they just like looked in the car. You're but kidding he me. Literally got just went right through the roadblocks because he wasn't the driver. Yeah. They were so focused on finding one guy yes. in the car. Yes. Yep. So, oh. um, so Thibodeau takes him back to his apartment. He had an apartment in Lenexa. I don't know what apartment it is. I know for sure that the apartment that he lived in at the time has been torn down now. Oh, okay. Um, But I don't know where it was. But it was close to where the Trafalgar Square apartments were. So um, he takes him to his apartment. He goes in with him. And Grissom just immediately starts packing bags. And he's like, yeah, dude, I just need to change the scenery. I got to get out of town. You can have the painting company. Take it. It's all yours. 
I'm going to go. Uh-huh. And so he's like, okay. And then he asks him to drop him off at the Motel 6. Because uh-huh. that's where his car is parked. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So he takes him to the Motel 6. He loads all of his shit up in his car. And he takes off. And Thibodeau says that's the last he had seen of him. Mm-hmm. And so when he's talking to detectives, he's like, I had no idea, you know, that I was helping him escape yeah. this, yeah. you know, manhunt. And I didn't know that um, he was fleeing. Yeah. And he's like, uh, he does have this storage unit in South Overland Park that you might want to check out. Oh, my God. Do yeah. all these Johnson County serial right. killers have storage yes. units? Yeah. And so police go to the storage unit, and inside of it is mostly just painting supplies. Okay. But they do find um, some balled-up duct tape, and it has hair in it. <gasps> oh. And so they take apart this duct tape, and the hair in the um, duct tape was deemed to be microscopically similar to Christine ruches okay yeah so i wish oh dna come on i know right yeah dna didn't exist yet (laughs) because i mean i'm yeah yeah so they're like okay well that's great now we've got this story about how he fled lawrence like we for sure know that you Mm -hmm. know that that kind of puts together some of the puzzle let's see what else we can get why so, would you bring back balled up duct tape? No though? idea. Yeah. Or maybe he had her. Maybe he held her in that and just storage okay, and unit. just left it behind yeah. on accident. Okay, I, yeah. I would buy that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As, as I'll, I mean, I can tell you this now. It doesn't really change the outcome. They've never found the girls' bodies. You're kidding. Never. Oh. Nope. So they get. Thibodeau's story and he's going to testify at trial and then they get a call from another woman who right around this same time June 1989 Mm -hmm. she is home alone in her Kansas City Missouri apartment she wakes up there's someone straddling her chest oh my god he's got a gun pressed to her head he says don't look at me don't say anything come with me or I'll kill you And so she's like, okay, I'll do whatever. And so she gets up. He leads her out of the apartment with this gun pressed against her head. And she gets outside and she's like, what am I doing? I cannot go with this man. If I go with this man, I will 100% be dead. And so she just starts screaming and yelling. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you if you don't shut up. And she just will not stop. Neighbors start coming outside. Yes. He shoots her. (gasps) It's a pellet gun. No. Oh, yes. my God. Amazing. He shoots her. It's a pellet gun. So she's like, oh, that kind of hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it hurts more than that, but it's yeah. not a bullet. She doesn't go down or anything. You know, I bet, I bet, though, it surprised the hell out of her. And I'm sure she did. Oh, I'm sure. She was really I'm sure. For a minute. And he takes off on foot. I love it. Yes. So when all of this stuff comes out about these women, she's like, Oh, that was the guy. Oh, shit, that's the same guy. So she can't ID him because he, oh. he was behind her the whole time. It was yep. dark in the apartment. The neighbor yes! came outside yes! positively IDs him. Oh, my God. So he is able to testify at uh-huh. trial as well. So I love this story. Oh, I've never yeah. heard this story. Yeah. So Richard Grissom's trial began in late October 1990. 
it was one of the biggest trials in Johnson County history today. Uh-huh. The people lined up every day to be able to get into the courtroom. Huge media coverage course, around yeah. it. The prosecution called more than 100 witnesses mm-hmm. and pieced together what seemed like thousands of pieces of circumstantial evidence. So there were a couple of things that at the time seemed like real tangible forensic evidence. So uh-huh. the hair on the duct tape. Right. Obviously, we know now that that maybe wasn't that reliable. Mm-hmm. But at the time, that was deemed like, yes, that's 100%. Microscopically similar. Yes. Right. Yep. Um, there was a drop of blood that was found in the trunk of the rental car that Joan had. Uh-huh. And it was deemed to be her blood type. Wow. So... It was a rental car. There was no reason for her blood to be nope. anywhere on it unless she had been yeah, murdered and put happened. in the trunk of the car. Yeah. It was just a drop though? Uh, they described it. One place said there was blood in the back of the car and uh, one said there was a drop of blood. So Probably just a drop. Probably. Yeah. Yes. So at the trial, Arcelis Thibodeau testified to everything that he had told, told detectives, which I think would have been really fucking hard because that's his friend and his business partner that he is having to stand up there on the. But at the same time, he aided him and abetted him after the fact without really knowing what he was doing. I would think that would hurt the friendship if I had found oh, out that you I don't had. I mean, like, it would be hard because his friend. I mean, oh. it would be fucking terrifying. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying. No, it no, would, no, no, okay. no. I was no, like, not because they're friends. No, I think it would be terrifying okay. if you can now see what this person is yes. capable of okay. and you have to go up there and testify against them. 100% with you. Yes. I was like, <laughs> I don't know, Brandy, if I found out you were a serial no, killer, I'd be like. If I was a serial killer, yes, you should 100% I, testify I'd turn on you pretty fast yes i'd be like i knew it along yes i was in it for the long game (laughs) yeah um so that that woman who was almost another victim of his testified the neighbor testified all of these pieces that they laid out for the jury like they just laid out every little bit and so much of it was circumstantial so there was such a risk yeah that the jury just wouldn't see it the way they did So prosecution lays out their case. They rest. The defense gets up and they say, there's no proof that these women are dead. There's no proof that any crime has occurred. The defense rests. Rested without calling a single witness. Well... I don't think it's a bad tactic. I don't either. if you can't find anyone who has said, oh, yeah, I saw her uh-huh. you know, on this date or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So November 3rd, 1990, the jury gets the case and they deliberate. Mm-hmm. And the families of the girls are like, oh, my gosh, I hope that they I hope that they understand this circumstantial evidence. I hope that they see it means the same thing we see it means. But like, it's so in the air when you have no body. This was the first case tried in Johnson County with no body. Yeah. And there were three murders with no bodies. Yeah. After 12 hours of deliberation over two days, the jury found Richard Grissom guilty Mm -hmm. on November 4th, 1990. On November 27th, he was given four life sentences. So one for each murder and then one for all of like the aggravated battery and stuff and robbery and whatever they were able to charge him with as well. Yes. 
Whoa. Um, so he will actually be eligible for parole in 2093. Um, he would be 133 years old. Yeah, I think we're safe. Yes. Um, he, to this day, refuses to say where the bodies were. What a turd. Or how he murdered the girls. The lead detective in the case said that it feels, even though they got a conviction, it feels like a failure because they weren't able to bring the girls home to their parents. That would drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine Rusha's dad says that he doesn't, he does not believe that they'll ever yeah. find the girls. Yeah. But that it allows him to be at peace because he can imagine her death how he wants to. He doesn't have to know what really happened to her. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. Richard Grissom is the worst kind of serial killing asshole because he's super fucking charming. And Mm -hmm. because of that, he is moved to a different prison in the Kansas prison system every nine months because he makes friends with the guards. <gasps> and they are such a worry about him being an escape risk. Oh, my god! Because he could convince a guard to help him escape. Wow. Yes. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? He's moved every nine months. So he can't get too friendly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that's the story of Johnson County's other serial killer. Okay, so technically, based on the facts presented here, he is technically a serial killer because he killed someone when he was 16, and then he killed the two, the one right. girl and then the two girls. There is actually another murder, or three actually, that he is suspected in. One, um, the, the, it's pretty much like 100% that he murdered this woman, but they've never tried him for it. So Wichita woman that he had a connection to, I don't know exactly what the connection was. She was murdered one week before Joan Butler was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. probably. Um, And there's two other um, women who went missing in 1989 um, in Kansas that have not been found, and they're pretty sure that he's tied to them as well. Oh, my gosh. Is that not so scary? Okay, so um, I lived uh, in an apartment in Lenexa when Zach and I first moved into our first apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we lived in an apartment in Lenexa, and the door had a handle lock, a deadbolt lock, and then an interior deadbolt that can only be locked from the outside and has no or it can only be locked from the inside, has no outside access. And so when we moved in, I asked my dad about that. I was like, why would you have that lock? Yeah. And he's like, oh, a lot of apartment complexes starting them putting them in after Richard Grissom. <gasps> oh. Because if you have that locked while you're home, even if someone has a master key to your apartment, they would not be able to gain access. Wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That story was terrifying. Terrifying. That was really good. Yeah. So I've got one more Johnson County case I'm going to do, and then I'm done talking about how terrifying my huh? bubble is. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, It kills me that they never found them, because don't you imagine that they're all probably in the same place? Yeah. So um, there's some detectives who believe that he buried them somewhere based on the, yeah. oh, you'll dig it up, you'll dig it up thing that he said during yeah. his interrogation. The prosecutor believes that 
he probably took them to the landfill because mm-hmm. if they were there within 24 hours, they would be buried 200 feet deep with the way oh. that landfills are yeah, turned over. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, I think it's just terrible that they'll those families will never get to have that closure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like this little bit of like something that he holds on to yeah. as like a little bit of power. I know where they are and you don't. Yeah. Yeah. What an ass. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of asses, you ready for this one? I am. <laughs> okay. I'm debating, should I pee? If you if you're thinking about maybe yeah. having to pee, probably I, do I it. Probably do it. You know what I really want is a donut. Do you have any? No. <laughs> okay. What I'm about to tell you comes almost entirely, and I mean like, I took a couple sentences from Wikipedia. <laughs> so this comes almost entirely from the 48 Hours episode, Sugarland, Life or Death. Great episode. Uh And it pains me to say this, but this idea came from DP. Oh! (laughs) So we've got DP on the episode, even when he's not here. Yes. Do we want to talk for a moment about the outpouring of love that DP has received? We should. And we should also tell people... We're a little bit hurt by it. What a monster he is. (laughs) I think I'm a little bit hurt about how much more people love him than us. So you tell people about the love. I'm going to pull up the text messages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So... The general consensus is that the episode with DP is the best episode we've ever put out in the history of ever. And you know what? I It's so good. I But here's the thing. Yeah. You know, we look at the analytics. Yeah. And like I told you, we got like more than a hundred more listeners for that episode on its first day than any other episode we've put out. Thanks a lot. I mean you can't you can't argue with the numbers, but I'm sorry we're not enough for you. Um, no, but it was really a good episode. He did great on yeah, it. Yeah, it was really fun. But he is also really feeling himself. He's got a Twitter and an Instagram now. Yeah, he found out you guys were giving him compliments on Instagram. <laughs> and so he started an Instagram account. <laughs> 60 years old, by the way, in case anyone's interested. So, okay. As you guys know... Um, from listening to the podcast, I spent the week between Christmas and New Year's in Florida for a wedding. I went with my family. You know, my yeah. dad was obviously there. And then we got back and there was like a day to get ready for our next episode and record. So anyway, not a lot of time. But in the meantime, our episode with my dad came out. People really liked it. So I started a thread with my mom and dad. And I texted them and I said, the reviews are in. People love the DP. And I yeah. took that screenshot of some of the yeah. praise he'd gotten. And my mom responded, disturbing, exclamation point. <laughs> and my dad goes, my guest fee will double next time. And then, like, two minutes later, episodes not on YouTube or Facebook yet? <laughs> and I got that and I was like, What? <laughs> And I said, we don't even put episodes on Facebook. Yeah. And he responded, because apparently he's now our manager and very concerned about this. 
Facebook has no announcement that the episode is out there. Last two episodes, not on YouTube. Wow! Quite the critique we're getting here. And I would just like to say for the record, the announcement was on Facebook. It was on Facebook, and I would like to say for the record that we When would you have put the episodes on YouTube? You had no time! So here's what I responded. I said, calm down, Diva Cup. I was on vacation. Diva Cup! I was on vacation this week, you may remember. (laughs) And Brandy posted the Facebook thing a few hours ago. Mom, please keep him in line. (laughs) So, yeah, we have like 85 people subscribed to us on YouTube. I will be the first to admit, YouTube is not the top priority. Not the top priority, no. Okay, the whole motive behind that one was because he wanted to share it and get more compliments yes yeah there's no mystery as to why he wanted us to be on the top of our game but making him look bad you know what Hmm. i will not be one bit surprised to learn when he tells us that he now owns 50 percent of this podcast (laughs) i think we're being nudged out Kristen. (laughs) pretty soon we own nothing nothing. (laughs) what do they really get from this podcast though is the question so a couple days ago, I was with my parents. My dad said, oh, my gosh, we just watched the best episode of Dateline. I was like, please, no, because I hate it when he tells me these yeah. stories and my mom always weighs in with why he's wrong and blah, blah, blah. He started telling me, and I had to admit, I was intrigued. Took a little while to figure out it wasn't Dateline. It was 48 hours. <laughs> but bottom line, this is a great story. Excellent. Brandy, buckle up. Okay. We got an email, by the way. From a listener who said she was really missing you buckling up. For I all did. The I just. Rides. I just buckled up just okay. now. Okay. Very good. Click. <laughs> I'm gonna do. I'll do a double buckle. Click. Also, she started her email in the best possible way. She said, "I know you probably get a lot of fan mail." <laughs> <laughs> Boy, do we! <laughs> I was just like wading through all of it, you know. Shockingly little. Folks. It's. It's amazing that I can even remember hers amidst all the other fan mail we get. So here we go. The Whitakers were a fun family. Kent and Trisha met on a blind date, and they hit it off right away. They eventually got married and had their two sons, Bart and Kevin. Bart! I know. Why are they naming their kid Bart? You want to know the weirdest part? His first name is Thomas... His middle name is Bartlett. He goes by Bart. What? I know. <laughs> well, that's that's not the weirdest part of this story, although it is up there. Yeah, why would you choose why? to go? I, I don't know. Uh, the oldest son. Uh, even Bartlett's way better than Bart. I don't know. I Six of one, it half dozen like of the other. Pear. Yeah, but you don't want to be a pear. Maybe I do want to be a pear. <laughs> Okay, you do you. (laughs) I'll be Thomas. So the oldest son, Bart, was really smart and funny. Kevin was sensitive and sweet. Both of the boys were well-liked. Trisha and Kent did well for themselves. By the way, I feel like I'm you right now. Because you always set these things up like, everything was perfect and let me tell you all the ways. (laughs) Kent was an accountant and Trisha was an elementary school teacher. Everyone said that their home in Sugarland, Texas, was full of love. In fact, the Whitakers were so welcoming that a lot of the kids thought of Kent and Trisha as their second parents. Mm-hmm. 
In the winter of 2003, the family had a lot to celebrate. Bart had just finished up his finals at Sam Houston State University, and he was about to graduate college. It was such an exciting moment. So on December 10th, when he told his parents, hey, I want to go out to eat, they were like, sure, of course. Mm -hmm. That night, they went out to Papa Doe. Yeah, Papa Doe. It's a seafood restaurant. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) I was so nervous because it was French. (laughs) Yeah. And we all know how good I am at pronouncing French words. It's a famous seafood chain. Oh, I see. I didn't know it was a chain. (laughs) I just knew, like, I'd never seen it before. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. We went there a few times when Zach lived in Houston. For graduation or something? Uh, Easter, I think, once. Because we went down there for Easter one time to visit him. I I don't know. We? Who'd you take with you? I went with Zach's parents. Zach's parents took me down there, and then I flew home because I stayed after they left. Mm. It was very nice of them to let me hitch a ride. You never thanked them at the moment, but now all these years later. (laughs) (laughs) No, we actually almost died on that trip. What? It was horrible. What happened? We were driving through Dallas. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, traffic in Dallas oh, is insane. insane. The highways have like eight lanes each direction. It's nuts. We're on the highway. There's this truck, like two cars up and one car over from us that's got mattresses in the back of it. Oh, no. Not strapped down Not properly. strapped down. The, it's like rush hour traffic. Oh. The mattresses fly up. Oh, They're no. They're tumbling oh. through the air towards our car. Zach's stepdad managed to somehow swerve out because a car had to swerve into our lane to avoid the mattress. Right. He managed to like swerve out and then like a lane went away so the median came back oh, and like God. he had to swerve back in. Somehow we didn't die and it was a miracle. Is he a former NASCAR right? driver? That's <laughs> Seriously, crazy. it was the craziest thing. Oh, luckily we had just had a bathroom break right before that or we all would have wet our pants. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's the part that strikes me as very lucky. (laughs) Anyway, Papado, famous seafood chain. (laughs) So they went to Papado. They took some pictures. They laughed. They had fun. And as a graduation present, I'm sorry, I'm having... Do you need a grapefruit again? (laughs) (laughs) I hope that people have done their homework and watched that video. Not at work. Yeah, not at work and not in front of children. Or anybody else with ear drums. <laughs> so they took some pictures, they laughed, they had yeah. fun. And as a graduation present, Kent and Trisha bought Bart something he'd always wanted. What? A Rolex watch. What? Oh, yeah. They were really proud of him. Like, they really wanted to... He's an accountant. She's an elementary school teacher. How are they buying him a Rolex? See... Now, I get what you're saying about the elementary school teacher. Your pay is kind of capped at a certain rate. But an accountant, accountant can you know. Make a lot of money. And they had a really nice home. I mean, I think they did pretty well. Holy hell, a Rolex. Did you not get a Rolex for graduation? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> They're like $30,000, like on the low end. See, these are the things I don't know. I mean, I doubt they... I mean... Hold on. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's like the gold one okay maybe you can get them for like here is like a shitty silver one six thousand dollars god that's still a really nice here's also one like a vintage collectible one that's four hundred thousand dollars okay well they didn't get him that (laughs) so you know they all had a nice time they ate their food they headed back home 
Kevin was the first one to the door. Trisha was right behind him. Kevin opened the door, walked in, and then there was this incredibly loud noise. A bang. What? Kent was just a little bit behind both of them. So he heard this loud noise, was like, whoa, what's going on? And then he heard Trisha, who was just behind Kevin, shout, oh, no. And then there was another loud bang. Like a gunshot? Yeah. (gasps) Who's shooting them? Kent runs up to the door. He sees Kevin and Trisha are on the ground. They've both been shot. And there's a man standing inside his home wearing a ski mask. And, you know, of course... Where's Bart? So Bart is right behind Kent. Okay. Okay. So... Kent is stunned, then all of a sudden he feels this explosion in his shoulder. He's been shot. He's been shot. By this point, Bart comes running into the house. Because, you know, he's like, holy shit, what's going on? He runs toward the gunman, and the gunman shoots Bart. (gasps) The entire Whitaker family had been shot. A neighbor heard all the noise. Again, nice neighborhood, four gunshots, a bunch of screaming. Oh my gosh, yeah. Neighbor hears a noise, rushes over. By that point, the gunman is gone. The neighbor called police. Kevin died almost immediately, and Trisha died at the hospital. Oh, my gosh. So Kent and Bart fully recovered. They had one directive for police. Find the guy who killed Kevin and Trisha. Find the guy who tried to wipe out our entire family. Police began to investigate the scene. At first glance, they kind of had this theory, probably they're dealing with a burglary gone wrong. Yeah, The family had probably just come in at the wrong time, surprised the guy, and that's just what happened. Mm -hmm. So they look around, and sure enough, all the dresser drawers are pulled open like somebody had been looking for valuables. But... Mm -hmm. Something is up. All the drawers are open the exact same distance. Mm-hmm. Which might not sound weird. No, but when but, you open, you don't, yeah. Yeah, so like picture a big dresser, uh-huh. and every, like nine drawers yeah. are all out like no. seven inches or something. Nope. On top of that, all the stuff was still, seemed to be in the drawers. Mm-hmm. So if this was a burglary, it was like the neatest kindest, mm-hmm. most respectful burglary where the guy was like, well, you know, I'd like to look, but I, I won't touch anything. Yeah. <laughs> also, all the electronics were still in the house. Mm-hmm. All the jewelry was still there. The only thing that was genuinely messed with was the gun safe. It had been pried open. But that was kind of weird, too, because their gun safe was kind of tucked away in the house, you kind of had to know where to go to find the gun safe. So whoever committed the crime knew where to find the gun, had staged a burglary, and had used the Whitaker's own gun to shoot all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. At that point, detectives were like, hmm, super weird. Obviously not a random crime. No, no. In fact, while the officers were looking around the house that night when the Whitakers had all been shot, one officer said to another, I think I've been here before. What? Someone was making threats against this family. So, 
I always think that's interesting. So do you ever watch like Live PD and stuff? No, no. Okay, so Live PD is like Zach's favorite show, and so it's on our TV a lot. Okay. But something that I find so interesting is that the police always remember when they've dealt with someone before. It's like this crazy police memory thing. When they're there can be in a completely different situation uh-huh. and they're like they pull somebody over and they're like Dude, didn't I just have to kick you out of Shady's bar last week? How do they remember oh, that? It's crazy to me. Hmm. Yeah. See, it doesn't surprise me that they would remember this. Mm-hmm. Although, well, okay, we'll get to okay. it. Okay. All right. So they interviewed Bart and Kent. And in the interview, Bart mentioned, you know, oh, we were out for my graduation dinner. I'm about to graduate from Sam Houston State University. And detectives were like, okay, cool. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. The next day, they pulled his transcript. (gasps) He's not about to graduate. (gasps) There's no gunman. It's Bart. It's all a cover up. Well, no. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. But Kent got shot. Yeah, Bart shot Kent. But Kent is saying someone was there with us. Yeah, to protect his other kid. Okay, okay. Obviously not. (laughs) (laughs) So Bart did not shoot the whole family to cover up that he's not graduating from college. And then Kent was like, my son, I'll protect you. Let's see. I'm guessing no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Bart, at the very least, is not graduating from college. So yeah, turns out Bart was not about to graduate In fact, he hadn't even been a student at Sam Houston for some time. According to his transcript, he was a freshman, and he was on academic probation. shit. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Detectives were like, whoa, this is weird. (laughs) This kid is lying about something pretty big. Yeah. And he's lying to everyone about it. Meanwhile, the community is obviously well aware of the crime. Hundreds of people attended Kevin and Trisha's funeral. It was devastating and really scary. Yeah. Because who could have wanted to do this? Yeah. A few days later, a man came forward to the police. His name was Adam Hip, and something really big was weighing on his conscience. Over the course of three hours, he told police that several years ago, Bart had approached him. Several years ago? Mm hmm. Several years ago. Bart had approached him and asked if he would murder his whole family. When he was like 16 years old? No, so Bart, you know, Bart's about to graduate college. Yeah, so he's like 22, uh-huh. several years ago. I would say two or three. All right. It's really more like a few, but. <laughs> <laughs> the outrage here is how old Bart was. Bart had it all planned out. Mm-hmm. He said, come to my house, take one of our guns, kill my whole family as we walk in the door. And then at the very end, just to fool the police, I want you to shoot me in the arm. Oh, my gosh. So this guy wouldn't do it, but somebody did. Police were like, whoa, holy sexy times. Because Bart was shot in the arm, right? Of course. Holy crap. The weird thing was, I mean, Kent was shot in the shoulder, but you know. Yeah. Anyway, so they're like, Bart is so much more than just a college dropout. He's behind this whole thing. All because he's pissed that his parents named him Bart. They named him Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) 
this is not on them. <laughs> so they go to Bart and they're like, Bart, buddy, could you please take us to your house? Walk us through what happened on the night of the shooting. Mm-hmm. And Bart is like, absolutely. I'd be happy to help. So they go. And Bart's like, not remembering much of anything. And the police were like, this is weird. You're being you're mm-hmm. being kind of evasive and you're supposedly the victim of this crime. This this yeah. doesn't seem right. Um no, I agree that that's super sketch. But what were they expecting to have seen? He wasn't in the house. He was the last person in the house, but he should, yeah. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying. It's I'm, weird I'm for him to be defensive you. when he's a victim. Well, and not really defensive, just like not really remembering hardly yeah. anything at all. But again, I, I'm I'm with you. That doesn't yeah. necessarily mean anything. Yeah. And if you need more evidence, we'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, Kent was aware that police considered Bart a suspect. But he was just like, that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. My son would never do this. Mm-hmm. But police were pretty sure. And they started thinking, if Bart approached his friend Adam with this plot a few years ago, not several, then maybe he took the same approach more recently. If we look at his current friend group, yeah. will we find the gunman? Probably. They or am- like, put up a billboard that says, has anyone attempted to solicit murder? <laughs> <laughs> call us now. <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> they immediately zeroed in on two friends. Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne. Mm. They both worked with Bart at a country club. Police asked... Stephen Champagne worked at a country club. I know. (laughs) Doesn't it seem like he should be a member of the country club? Police asked Chris and Stephen to provide scent samples. Which... What? I assume it's like, here, take this maxi pad, rub it under your armpit, and there we go. There's your scent sample. I don't know. What's a scent sample? I... Listen, all I can tell you is what 48 Hours told me. (laughs) What is it? Well, seriously, don't you think that, like, they take cotton swabs and swab all the stinky parts of your body? (laughs) And then they give it to the bloodhound? What parts are the stinky parts of your body? If you don't, if you are an adult woman and you don't know what stinks on you, I can't help you. So they take the samples, give it to the bloodhound. Bloodhound's like, (laughs) and then they compare that to the evidence collected from the crime scene. Okay, got it. Do you got it? (laughs) It's so weird. I've never Mm. heard of that. Sure enough, the dogs caught Chris Brashear's scent. It was on one of the drawers that had been opened up in the Whitaker home. How much time has passed? Um, I don't think much. Fucking Kent and Bart are fully healed by now. Well, they really just had glancing blows. (laughs) I'm sorry. And they're still picking up scents in the house? I'm questioning this science. Would it help you to know that his scent was also found on the murder weapon? (laughs) I don't know. Does that help? I guess. I just don't know about this scent science. Okay. There's something better than a scent... Are you going to give me some DNA or some fingerprints? They also did lick samples. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's when, a, of course, a police officer licks you. And then licks, licks the, the murder scene. one. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> they're like, mm, yes, taste the same. Like peanut butter and chocolate goes together. <laughs> We've got our guy. <laughs> so police were like, all right, Chris, we know it's you. But Chris was like, no, no way. No, scent science. What, what the yeah, hell is that? Exactly. What the fuck is scent science? I like you, Chris. <laughs> oh, boy. Just kidding. I'm pretty sure you're a murderer. <laughs> Police are like, uh-huh. Sure. Okay, Chris. Thank you very much. This was not tough to crack. But then one night, as police were continuing to investigate the case, and I think this by this point, it's like seven months yeah. after the murder. All right. They're still picking up since? <laughs> still sniffing those drawers. <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> That poor bloodhound. <laughs> Bart told, Better than licking those <laughs> Bart told his dad, see ya, I'm going out tonight, I'm going to a club. I'll see you tomorrow. Hmm. But tomorrow came, and Bart did not come back. <gasps> In fact, he never came back. <gasps> Bart ran away. Police were like, Fuck! So Officer Marshall Slot was the guy who was in a slot. Not slut. I still think slot's a pretty bad last name. (laughs) I've got the last name Pitts. I'm not making fun of anybody. No, I just think it's a funny last name, Mm -hmm. Slot. So they interviewed him for 48 hours. Like, hey, Slot, get in here. (laughs) They call him the Slot Machine. (laughs) Officer Slot was pretty angry. He felt like he'd let Bart get away. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really his fault. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I think it was one of those things where they kind of figured, okay, we know pretty well for sure what's going on here. Yeah. But they didn't have enough. Enough, yeah. Yeah. So he leaned even harder on Bart's friends. Did he lean harder on the Look at you. You're so proud of yourself. Alex, it's a funny last name. So he talked to Bart's friend, Stephen Champagne. And finally, Stephen cracked. Hmm. The bottle popped. Bubbled over. <laughs> really disappointed he didn't try and do a champagne pun there. You know, it honestly did not even occur to me. Really? Because the only thing that occurred to me about his last name was like, man, he really got involved in something seedy here. (laughs) But I mean, there's no joke there. It's just (laughs) just classy name. Not a very classy. Yes. But finally, Stephen cracked. He was like, I can't take it anymore. I was the getaway driver. Chris was the shooter. And Bart set the whole thing up. Yeah. Stephen gave them more than just a confession. He showed police the ex- exact spot over a bridge where he and Chris had thrown a ton of evidence. Ammunition, the chisel they used to get into the gun safe, the two burner phones that Bart had bought them. It was all in a neat little bag. And police found it. Well, that's fucking dumb. Yeah, I agree. Why do you bag it up so it's all together? I mean, why do you just ask your friends to go murder your entire family? I mean, yeah. none of this is good. That might be the problem. <laughs> You're right. I'd be right looking at the wrong problem. 
So police arrested Chris and Steven, obviously. But where the hell was Bart? Turns out he was in Mexico. Hmm. Cerralvo, Mexico, which is about 40 miles south of the border. And he was doing all right. He had a new name, Rudy Rios. Hmm. He had $7,000 in cash stolen from his father. Mm -hmm. And he could speak a little Spanish, so he rented an apartment. To the locals, Rudy didn't seem to have a care in the world. He went out drinking, he charmed the ladies, and had a good old time. He even went to church. Really? Yes, which to me is like, okay, some people, it must just be about the social aspect or like a habit, because why the hell are you going to church? Yeah. Maybe Rudy Rios was starting over. I don't think Getting so. Right with God. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he met Cindy Lou Salinas. She was immediately impressed by him. I'm sorry, Cindy Lou who? Salinas. That was a, a Grinch Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was pretty good. <laughs> she was no more than two. Oh, that's gross. No, she was more than two. Leave <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> So the two of them start dating. And soon her dad offered Rudy a job at his furniture store. Uh-huh. Rudy was a good hard worker. The Salinas family loved him. And how could you not? Poor Rudy was an only child. His mother was a prostitute who had never loved him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, he's really selling the sob story. And you know what? As a result, he didn't love her either. <laughs> His family didn't love him. They ignored him. Poor, poor Rudy. For more than a year, Bart lived in Mexico oh as Rudy. Gosh. 14 months. Oh my gosh. Kent was devastated. I can't believe he'd stay in one place for that long. Uh, yeah, pretty dumb, huh? Yeah. I'm guessing he gets cut. Yep. <laughs> Kent was devastated. He had defended his his son for a really long time, but he was like, okay, innocent people don't run away. So Kent, and I love this guy. He's like, he seems like the sweetest, Mm -hmm. best human being. He'd finally started to wrap his head around the fact that Bart did this. Bart did this, yeah. Meanwhile, police are still angry. And then... They got a phone call. It was from Rudy Rios. (gasps) The real Rudy Rios. (laughs) He said, I can tell you exactly where Bart Whitaker is because I helped him get there. Turns out Bart and Rudy worked together at a restaurant in Houston. And Bart came to Rudy one day and was like, oh, man, police are really breathing down my neck. You know, So Rudy said, (laughs) and so Rudy pieced together what he meant by that and was like, well, if you ever need help, let me know. I've got family in Mexico. And Bart said, yeah, that sounds good. Could we do that like right now? Mm -hmm. So Bart paid Rudy $3,000 to take him down to Seralvo. 
But then Rudy started seeing stuff on TV and in the news about a $10,000 reward for information about the... He's like, hmm, man, I could have $10,000. Yeah, like $13,000 off this whole thing. So he told police, if there's a reward, you know, I don't care. I'll turn his ass in. But I am so with you, though. Again, telling people how to commit crimes. You don't stay in the same place. No. You have to assume that the shitty person who helped you get out of trouble for setting up... Yeah, it's probably going to turn on you. (laughs) Yeah. So Bart was found immediately. Yeah. Obviously, because he stayed right where he was put. Well, yeah, he had a girlfriend. And a job. (laughs) I can't believe he got a job. So they sent him back to Texas. Police and prosecutors were like, sweet. Fred Felchman is the first assistant district attorney for Ford County. This dude is a character. He has this sweet handlebar white mustache. Nice. Uh, he loves he he looks like an old timey Texas sheriff. Uh huh. Dude loves justice. Excellent Texas style. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quickly, he starts building his case. I'm including a quote from him from 48 Hours because I I don't love this, but I do love this. Okay, here's what he said. There's a term they use in psycho lingo, psycho babble, of sociopath. In other words, a person who knows he's doing something wrong but really doesn't care. The old time Texas thing was that he was just a mean son of a bitch, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) not super into psychology. Yeah, clearly not. But knows a son of a bitch. (laughs) So Fred went after Bart. In his mind, it was simple. This was a multiple murder. Bart deserved the death penalty. And that's exactly what he yeah, aimed for. Sorry. sorry. You've got... Um, <laughs> sorry. You've got, you've got Kleenex stuck to your eye. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It was stuck to your eyelashes. Your poor watery eyes... You've got that Kleenex balled up like it's a tampon. Let me get you a new one. Here you go. So Fred's like, we're getting the death penalty. Bart's defense attorney, Randy McDonald, had a very tough job. Uh, Yeah. Because Bart clearly did this. I mean, there was like tons of witnesses, tons of evidence. Yeah, confessions. Dude ran away to Mexico. Yeah, doesn't look great. Duh, for sure he did this. So at trial, Randy took a sort of unique approach. Mm-hmm. He basically conceded that Bart did the crime. So the defense all came down to this, convincing the jury that Bart shouldn't be sentenced to death. Mm. That, was, that was like he the only like thing. Clarence Darrow. Yeah. That's what Clarence Darrow did in Leopold and Loeb. Clarence also went strong into psychology and background. But here's the interesting thing. I think I think Bart probably had a pretty good upbringing and yeah. a pretty good life. And so there yeah. was like I imagine if there was anything they could point to like oh he was abused. I feel like for sure they would have brought it up. Yeah. But I think dude uh just had a screw loose. Was just a mean son of a bitch, mean okay? Son of a bitch. <laughs> 
Now, I hate to say that because of Trisha. I don't mean that in the literal sense. Anyway, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By this point, Bart didn't have hardly anybody in his corner. Mm-hmm. Except for his dad. Kent became Bart's biggest defender. Still staying by him. Well, I mean, it's your kid. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the thing he kept saying over and over again was, I do not want the state to kill the only other member of my family. Oh, so yeah. true. Yeah. And again, super religious guy. And he kept coming down to this thing of like, I want my son to get to the point where he feels remorse and where he can really ask God for forgiveness. I'm surprised they would seek the death penalty against his wishes. You know, I am too. Because he's a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But we'll get more into it. But yeah, yeah, I, again, you know, I'm not into the death penalty at all, but... But yeah, I would think that having the lone surviving victim in all this say, yeah. please don't put him to death, I would think that would make an impact. Yeah, I would think so. Kent's position was basically this. Don't set my son free, but don't kill him either. Mm-hmm. He needs time to change as a person. He needs time to seek forgiveness from God. Mm-hmm. But the prosecution was like, sorry, Kent, this is Texas. We heart the death penalty. Yeah, I think there's bumper stickers there that say that. (laughs) (laughs) This trial took place three years after the crime. And the prosecution put on a hell of a show. They had forensic evidence. They had witnesses. Boy, oh boy, did they have witnesses. Their star witness was Stephen Champagne, Mm -hmm. the getaway driver. He told the jury that It all came down to money. About two months before the murders, Bart came to him and Chris and said, Hey, if my whole family dies, I'm going to inherit a lot of money. In fact, I'll be the sole beneficiary of a million-dollar insurance policy. You guys help me kill my family, and I'll give you a cut. How much? I don't know. Hmm. It was all pretty damning. A million dollars is not that much money. Like, okay, you know what? You and DP feel the same way on this because my dad was like, million dollars, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think these. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think these guys were idiots. They were like 20 something. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but you're right. It's just not that much money. Yeah. And to kill a whole family? Yeah, exactly. What a horrible thing to do. Yeah. Stephen told the jury the whole story, and it was pretty awful. Yeah. On cross-examination, the defense basically said, Wow, you're kind of a shitty person, huh? And Stephen said, The way that I looked at it was, they weren't human. Oh. It's kind of funny. I So, from watching his testimony, I kind of... I don't know. I, I just appreciated that he just kind of came yeah. out with it and was like, yeah. was like, yep, I, I did what I did. It was for money. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of them as humans. Yeah. The prosecution's case was even better than you think it is. Because in the course of their investigation, they found that Bart had tried to kill his family at least 
three different times. Holy shit, what is wrong with Bart? Using different sets of friends. Yeah, Bart's, to use some psychobabble, a sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) So turns out that in 2000, Bart asked his two college roommates if they would kill his family. So they both testified. And they told him, yes, they would do it. Okay, this... We're getting, what? We are getting to the craziest part of this to me. So he comes to them with this idea. They're both like, yeah, sure. The two guys got to the house, went to a window that Bart had told them, I guess, would be open or would be easy to open. But as soon as one of them tried to open it, an alarm went off. So they ran off. And they didn't go through with it. Oh, my gosh. Two months later. Who the fuck are these friends? Okay, Again, this is the craziest story because we're going to go through a few of these friends. They are all, this is the scariest thing to me. They're like in their little khaki pants. They've got their little button ups. They've got the doughy face of a 22 year old. Oh my gosh. I mean, they just look to me totally normal guys. Yeah. But they were convinced, oh yeah, let's kill a whole family. Yeah. One of these guys was a National Merit Scholar. Oh my gosh. I assume none of them had cr- criminal records because I feel like that would have been brought up. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they, they appeared to be just like guys from wealthy families who had no reason to do this, but were somehow convinced that, yeah, this is a great idea. That is nuts. So two months later, Bart approached Adam Hip. He was the guy who came forward after the Whitakers were shot and were like, oh, my God, uh, got some stories about Bart. So Adam told his story in court, and he said, yeah, Bart approached me about killing his family. And I said yes, that I would do it. But it never progressed beyond talking. Mm -hmm. Then Bart came up with another plan. So now we're in 2001. And somehow a college acquaintance named Jennifer Jaffet found out about what Bart was plotting. So she actually went up to him, and she said, are you really going to let this happen? She told the jury that Bart took her in a big hug and whispered in her ear, everything's going to be okay. Mm. But she was like, no. Mm-mm. So she actually called the police. She did? Yes. She called the police. I believe this was in 2001. Police took it seriously. Uh-huh. They went to Trisha and Kent. They said, we've got this complaint. Someone says that your son is plotting to have you your whole family killed. So they were like, well, that's insane. So they called Bart, and Bart was like, what? No, obviously this is some big misunderstanding, some big mix-up. Bitches be crazy. You know, like, that's not happening. <laughs> so, like you do, you know, Kent and Trisha just thought it was some crazy thing that had been totally misunderstood. Oh, my God. Yes. So... Again, in this in this episode, I wish I'd written down his exact quote, but Kent was just like, look, I know it makes me sound stupid that we didn't take this seriously, but it just didn't seem yeah. possible yeah. at all. And even when it happened, you know, a few years later, it still didn't seem possible. Oh, my gosh. The trial lasted one week. The jury went into deliberation, and they stayed there for two whole hours. Uh (laughs) Guess what they found? Guilty! Guilty. Yeah, no one was surprised. Yeah. 
the real mystery, obviously, was what would happen in the punishment phase. Yeah. So, Kent, of course, took the stand, and he told the jury he didn't want his son put to death, and neither would Trisha. Then, Bart took the stand. And he did? Yeah. I mean, this was, this gets pretty nuts. He told them, I am 100% guilty. I put the plan in motion, and if I hadn't done that, none of this would have happened. I'm going to read you a transcript. Defense attorney, do you feel any remorse for this? Bart, yes, sir, I do. Defense attorney, who do you feel remorse for? Bart, I feel remorse for everyone involved, starting with my dad, my mom, my brother, my whole family. So he starts to say family, doesn't even get the word out, stops. And then he says, everyone I've ever met in my life, I feel sorry for having come in contact with me. Ooh. I know. So then the defense attorney says, can you answer the question, why? And Bart basically says no. But then he eventually kind of says that, he always felt like his family's love for him was conditional and that he could never meet their expectations. Hmm. Bart's attorney then asked, do you have any plans or desires to kill anyone else? And Bart said, no. The only people I've ever hated were my parents and my brother. Holy shit. So when he said that in court, the camera pan to Kent. Yeah. And you just see him flinch. Yeah. The prosecutor lit Ugh. into him. Ugh. They gave me like chills I all know. over. I hate I know. that. The only people I've ever hated are my parents and my brother. Because I think that was a big thing about do we give him the death penalty? The the question was will he kill again? Yeah. And so they're trying to say Oh, no, don't worry. He was only a threat to his family. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the prosecutor stands up and he's like, how can you say that your parents had conditional love for you? All your mom ever talked about was you and Kevin. She loved you. How could you be so disconnected Mm -hmm. from reality? So Fred launched into this theory that Mm -hmm. was essentially this. You are irrational. You kill people for no reason. This could absolutely happen again. Therefore, we must kill you to stop Mm -hmm. that. But Bart said he was a different person back then. Okay, so things got super tense. Here's another transcript. Bart, do you believe a person can't be sorry for the things they did? Prosecutor. No, I think they can be, Mr. Whitaker, but I don't think you are. I think you're sorry you got caught, and now you're trying to figure out how to get out of the death penalty. Hmm. Might be true. The jury deliberated for 10 hours. Hmm. What do you think they found? I think it would be really hard to sentence him to death when his father sat up there and asked them not to. So I think they did not sentence him to death. They did. Wow. I know. I'm I'm with you. Oh my gosh. So Bart But at huh. the same time, if you did the dad testify before Bart did? 
Um, that's how they showed it in the 48 Hours okay. episode? I don't know, though. So I feel like if you see... What's the dad's name? Kent? Yeah, Kent. You see Kent's testimony. Uh-huh. He's my son. Please don't end his life. I don't want that. Trish wouldn't want that. And then you see Bart go up there and say, the only person I've ever, the only people I've ever hated are my parents and my brother. Mm-hmm. You might be like, well, that kid's a fucking monster. Yeah. Of course we put him to death. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know. I... Yeah, I to me, if I were the juror, I think I would have a very hard time sentencing someone to death when their parent sat there. Their parent, their victim. Yeah, the, I mean, I think that's the big key thing. It's like yeah, parent slash victim. Yeah, sat there and said, I do not want them put to death. So he was sentenced to death. He was sentenced to death. He appealed. Uh-huh. Um, and he with the appeal, he tried a little bit of everything. He said his attorney was ineffective. He said the death penalty was cruel and unusual. He said there was prosecutorial misconduct. But in 2017, the Court of Appeals dismissed his appeal. Mm. So Bart took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. But they were like, no, nah, we're busy. We're not going to yeah. hear this case. <laughs> So all of his appeals were exhausted. Ten years had passed. The whole time, Kent stayed by his side, lobbying to get his son off death row. Uh But nothing worked. Mm -hmm. Bart was scheduled to die on February 22nd, 2018. A week before Bart's execution date, Kent tried one last time. He spoke to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. He cried. He told them everything he'd mm-hmm. ever said. Please don't kill the last member of my family. Yeah. Then on February 20th, two days before the execution, the board said, okay, we don't want to execute him. Let's give him life without parole. Wow. But that didn't completely stop things uh-huh. because you have to get the governor to weigh oh, in. Right. And the governor didn't say shit. Oh, my gosh. So Kent and Bart said their final goodbyes. Bart ate his last meal. He was brought in to be strapped down. And then, less than an hour before the execution, Governor Greg Abbott spared Bart's life. Oh, my gosh. I feel like that's cruel and unusual. Just, like, uh, yeah. stringing him along to the last hour? Yeah, I don't understand how, like, that gets to the bottom of your to-do I list. I don't either. Holy shit. So, he said that there were two big factors in his decision. The fact that Bart wasn't the one who pulled the trigger Mm -hmm. and that Kent had lobbied so Mm -hmm. hard. Kent had said that if Texas put his son to death, he would be victimized all over again. Yeah. Bart said, I am thankful for this decision, not for me, but for my dad. Bart Whitaker remains in prison. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I cannot believe that it, like, got down to him. About to be executed like it that. It seems like that's more common than it should be, where it's like a last minute call. Oops, Holy don't do that. Shit. Yeah. Ugh. So there you have it. DP strikes again. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what? You got floaties in your tea there? Um, yeah, I think some tea leaves escaped from the tea bag. I was really disturbed. Oh, all right. Sorry. Are you going to read them once you finish it and see if, like, your death mm. is coming? Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that what they always... 
I feel like impending doom. Have you ever had your palm read or anything? No, I never have. I want to do it sometime. Let's go do it together. Let's go get our palms read. You know what? Okay. Oh, next week is yeah. our one year anniversary. Oh yeah. What What should we do? I don't know. What should we do? Okay. Well, you know me. I always feel okay. Like I food kind of needs feel like involved. we're kind of cheating. We're gonna have to do two one year anniversaries. What do you mean? Because it's our fifty second episode, which means that it's. But we put them out kind of fast in the beginning. So we uh-huh. didn't release our first episode until February. So oh, come on. It's kind of cheating. Well, I guess. It's our, we what, make our own fucking rules. Are you so. saying two opportunities for cake? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's okay, what I'm saying. Then, then yes. I'm on board. Then yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. Next week's going to be big. We're going <laughs> to. Oh, I'm, shit. What are we going to do? I don't know. I am going to come in a full ball gown. Oh, good. Do you still have your prom dress? Oh, probably somewhere. Uh, yeah, I don't have mine, I don't think. Well, no, have, my mom's basement. I have probably like a wedding dress and a bridesmaid <laughs> dress. <laughs> I know. Let's put on the bridesmaid dresses from every wedding we've ever been. Layer them up. Oh, God, that would not be a good look. <laughs> Do you go long to short or short to long? I mean, obviously, your longest one goes underneath your. Oh, I'm sorry. Line. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> it's the dumb. Like, it's the Duh. dumbest question I've ever asked. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've never layered bridesmaid dresses before, Kristen. <laughs> Excuse me, but I'm not up on the rules. Norman and I have a very classy household. We constantly wear our finest gowns all at the same time. For lunch on Tuesday. <laughs> but no, what should we do? I don't know. Should we do like a special... Hmm. I don't know if this is going to work. You know my fantasy about having... Okay, you don't have to give me that crazy look like you're going to hear some weird sexual thing. <laughs> it's concerned. No. So, you know my fantasy about having an advice column. Oh, yeah. Do you think this is enough notice if we put out stuff... Eh, Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Although I feel like. Well, we can do that for our second anniversary. For our anniversary in February, I mean. What food should we have? I think we should have cake. Okay. Or donuts. You mentioned donuts today. No, we've had donuts before. Yeah. That's that's not special it's enough. Cake. It's got to be cake. It's got to be cake. Yeah. I'll bring a cake. You don't have to bring a cake. I'm going to bring a cake. I'll bring the cake, Kristen. <laughs> okay. Tell me not to bring the cake. I'll bring the cake. <laughs> what if I also bring a cake? That's really too much and cake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's already going to be too much cake yeah. with just the three, the three of us. Of us. Yeah. yeah. All right. I don't know. We'll do something fancy. We'll do something special. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cake and TBD. <gasps> do you think we could find anniversary themed lawsuits? Mm. That'd probably be really tough. Yeah. <laughs> All of my ideas are fizzling really fast. <laughs> Maybe, Kristen, what you could do for us is you oh. could go update us on all of your cases that hadn't ended yet when you <laughs> no, covered them. No, that sounds them. terrible. <laughs> there are so many. Everything's fine. <laughs> That's the catch-all. <laughs> but everything's not fine. No. Yeah. Yeah. Some of mine. Mm. Oof. Mm. Oof. I don't know. We'll think about it. We'll come up with something amazing. And you guys better, you know, stay tuned. Yeah. To figure out what if we figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> if next week we have no 
no cake and no ball gowns, you'll know we really dropped the ball. Gown. What? (laughs) Never mind. What? You said, if we have no cake and no ball gowns, you'll know we really dropped the ball. And then I said, gown. I missed missed the timing there, I guess. (laughs) That's why we're such a good duo. why we're going pro um by the way guys once again we have charted in south africa and charted for the first time in nigeria nigeria i'm so excited man when do we go on tour uh to To just africa Africa. because clearly africa is listening africa is where our diehard fans are thank you thank you africa rest of the world we're looking at you (laughs) north america where the hell are you Be sure to tune in next week because we will have one hell of an anniversary special to throw at you. (laughs) Or, at the very least, there will be an episode. (laughs) And you might have to listen to us eat cake. (laughs) Oh, gross. Let's not do that to him. Uh, So, yeah, join us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Send us an email if you uh, if you're feeling jealous about that person we called out today. Okay, yeah. LGTC podcast at Gmail dot com. That's also if you want advice on anything. Yes. Kristen would love to give it to you. (laughs) I don't give good advice. I just love (laughs) advice. (laughs) And then uh, be sure to join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the 48 Hours episode, Sugarland, Life or Death, and Wikipedia. And I got my info from an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn, CrimeFeed.com, and the Associated Press. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCPodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. 